take the one seat. And this is a journey from the head, the heart, and the gut. And they're not different things. They're not separate, they're all connected. And taking your one seat and journeying down from the head to the heart to the gut is like a stone dropping. It's like a mountain settling, layering. So that's what we've been doing here today, is settling and deepening in our inner stillness. And as you know, inner stillness is very important in this world. With a lot of talking heads and a lot of emotional fire, to be able to ground and drop like a stone in your inner stillness, very important in these times. Not just for yourself, but for the whole world. As you've seen today, part of this is unclenching our thoughts and not identifying with our thoughts and relaxing the heart and then dropping down into the gut where there's just this vibration of stillness. And the beautiful thing is the longer you are in the path, the more this just starts to take over by itself, this gut stillness vibration, the less you have to do. So if you stick around, it does get easier. It seems like you're doing in the beginning, but you're not really. You're showing up for it to do you. So part of what you probably have seen today is meditation is about not letting yourself get possessed by your thoughts. And that's no small feat in this culture and this time. To be a person who's not possessed by your thoughts, or at least not for very long, that's a great gift. To be able to step aside and go, wow, I'm enraged or I'm, you know, I'm I'm obsessed with something. To just be able to step aside and see that is so huge. And when we can do this, a second thing happens, and that's our system starts to naturally regulate and heal itself. When we're not possessed by our thoughts and emotions, we can come into a a natural homeostasis, a natural oscillation of our true nature and our true fluidity. And don't just believe me. See it for yourself. It builds over time and practice. And our system heals just by not blending with our thoughts and emotions all the time. And when we can start to get this true regulation and this deeper dropping like a mountain, all of life can start to move with that oscillation around us. And all of life can start to sync with your deeper vibration. Do you know how a deeper sound kind of draws other sounds down? Like if you were a low note in a room of high notes, it would kind of bring those notes down. That's what we're doing energetically with meditation. It's really important 
to be the low notes, to be the mountain, to be the stillness. When everybody's like rushing and cacophony and agitation. And if you get pulled up there, you can come back down. So taking your one seat, it's taking your seat in the gut. It's taking your seat in what you stood up for on Friday night saying, I absolutely know this is what I can trust. It's taking your seat in you. And the Buddha did this under the Bodhi tree. You know, he tried all these head practices and he did some heart practices and he tried all kinds of things and then he wore himself out. And finally, almost as a last resort, he took some nourishment in his gut from Sujata, a woman walking by, some rice milk. He took nourishment in his gut and he just said, I'm going to just take my seat. And there weren't five seats for him to choose from. He didn't have to doubt which one is it. It was, he just knew, right there. And it wasn't musical chairs. He didn't have to worry about someone else taking his seat. And neither do you. There aren't five seats. There's not someone trying to get your seat. There's one seat under the Bodhi tree, just for you. Are you willing to take it for yourself and for the world? And we don't just take it once, okay? It seemed like the Buddha took it once, but he took it over and over again. You know, when he went out to the world, he was challenged, do I really want to teach? I mean, people seem very confused is what he said at first. And then he had to take his one seat again as a teacher, as somebody who is willing to continue. It's a courageous act, but you know, in a way, the fact that you're all here, it's your destiny. That's not a small word. It's your destiny to take your one seat for yourself and the world. Whatever that means for you. And part of the Buddha's journey of taking his one seat was he touched the earth for confirmation. Gosh, do I have a right to sit here? So it's okay to get support along the way. You don't have to do this as like an individual thing. He touched Mother Earth. He touched the feminine. And he said, hey, do you affirm? Do you bear witness? Do I ever write to the tree of life? That's more modern day interpretation, but you have a right. And touch the earth if you need to. Go outside in nature. Ask a friend. Look into your dog's eyes. You have a right to take your seat as love, as truth, as compassion, whatever it is. It's yours. So this retreat is a courageous act, and it keeps going. You might not ever remember what you said on Friday night about what you trust. And it doesn't matter, but you'll remember that you stood up and you took your stand and you said you were here. And the beauty of the Buddha taking his one seat and the beauty of all of us taking her one seat is it represents something unshakable and immovable, which is bigger than our ego and our personalities 
and our thoughts and our emotions. And we all need something bigger than all of that noise and change. Not that it's bad, but you know, the mind is wind energy. It's a lot of wind energy, and we really need to know something that's more grounded than wind energy. That's taking your one seat on the earth as you. And it's also taking refuge in our ancestors. We made this tree of ancestors. They back us up when we take our one seat. There's many before us that have taken this seat. So that unshakable, immovable presence that you can orient to. See if you can find it even in your body now. It doesn't go anywhere. What's your orienting principle? As a culture, we've lost our orienting principles. Religion has lost its orienting principles sometimes. So we need to know what our orienting principle is, independent of our government, our religion, what's happening in the world, what people are saying, independent of what your partner thinks about you. What's your orienting principle, no matter what? And when you know that, you can become an unshakable presence in the world. And that doesn't mean your orienting principle isn't somewhat fluid, but it has integrity and it has dignity and it has sincerity and love. If it's not a principle with love, it'll have you drive a plane into the World Trade Center. So have it be about love. So it's finding something bigger than ourselves and our personalities that we can sit in. And part of this means accessing a wide presence. So really, we can get very focused and part of what we need to do more and more as a culture and as individuals is get wider attention. So imagine right now making your brain wide, your thoughts really wide, and your heart, attention of your heart really wide. My teacher says, cast the net of your mind and heart as wide as you can. Imagine that, like casting a net of your mind and heart. And then make your gut really wide. That wide attention, that wide time. Our time, unfortunately, with these smaller and smaller devices, and they've actually researched this, I'm not just pulling this off the top of my head, that the computer attention is pinpointed and it creates more aggression because historically when we were pinpointed, we were focused on prey or being 
you know, preyed upon. So this is very, it's aggressive energy. You know, when you see animals do it, it's very aggressive. So we really need to bring in more wide. Not that the computer stuff is bad, but we have to counteract it with this wide casting the net that creates love and relaxation. I like to call it 360 awareness. And sometimes I'll go in big stores like Whole Foods or Costco, you know, stores that are really dysregulating because they're so busy. And I'll just imagine I've got 360 awareness and I'll try to see, you can even do it now, look at the corners of the room and just make your attention really wide. And it so relaxes your system when you open that panorama and you're not trying to just hear the talk right now or understand it, but you're just relaxing back. Wide time. You know, when you do really good work as a psychotherapist, you do, you give the person the impression of wide time. Like it's endless and they're the only person in the universe. And it's great. We all need that. But nature gives us wide time, doesn't it? Animals give us wide time. Children give us wide time. Retreat can give us wide time. In fact, some of those sits feel like they're never going to end, do they? (laughs) They're so wide. (laughs) Your gut has wide time. And that's why it's important we keep bringing the Dharma from here, from the head and understanding. And the heart is great too. And down into the gut. And you can go up and down like a ladder, but know how to drop down like a mountain, create wide knowing. So this taking the one seat, Thich Nhat Hanh has a reading about this from The Miracle of Mindfulness, which is a really ancient Dharma book from the 70s. (laughs) He wrote, Zen master Doc Te says that when sitting in meditation, one should sit upright, giving birth to this thought. Sitting here is like sitting on the Bodhi spot. The Bodhi spot is where Lord Buddha sat when he attained enlightenment. If any person can become a Buddha, and the Buddhas are all those countless persons who have obtained enlightenment, then many have sat on this very spot I sit on now. Sitting on the same spot as a Buddha gives rise to happiness, and sitting in mindfulness means itself to have become a Buddha. So you've all sat in mindfulness and become a Buddha. The poet Nguyen Kong Tru experienced the same thing when he sat down on a certain spot and suddenly saw how others had sat on the same spot countless ages ago and how in ages to come, others would come sit here. And he wrote this little poem. On the same spot I sit today, others came in ages past to sit. One thousand years, still others will come. Who is the singer and who is the listener? You sit here 
Many have sat here under and taken their one seat, and many others will come. Who is the singer and who is the listener? So as you see in this poem, you take the one seat for you. That's your destiny. But then it's a bit like a magic trick. You take your one seat and everything shows up. Everything. The whole world, Hawaii, shows up. The horrible, the wonderful. Everything you like, everything you don't like, it's in this one seat with you, the past, the future. It's very trippy the more you start to sink and drop into it. Your one seat includes everything. John Cunningham and I had a teacher, Matt Flickstein, and he wrote a book called Swallowing the River Ganges. And that's such a great title because that's what you're doing, taking your one seat. You're swallowing the river Ganges, which, as we know, includes a lot. <laughs> Quite the river. Pollution, sacred, burials, skyscrapers, dreams. Everything's in there. A Zen master said, the great cosmos is your total personality. So that's why you don't just have your personality. The great cosmos is your total personality. And you don't just embody one corner of it. Let yourself embody the whole cosmos when you take your one seat. So instead of being a position in the environment, you become the environment more and more. That's what practice is doing. So if you want to go there, that's where it goes. <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart. You can't embody everything in your head, and you can't embody and feel everything in your heart. It would just be too much. So in a way, the more you see that you're everything and everything is you, you have to come to the gut. Because the gut's zero. The gut is zero. Equanimity, it's just empty zero. So it can hold everything like this empty bowl that can ring. And only there will you get filled up with everything. So keep dropping down. I had the image the other day in a sit at the Dharma Center where it's like two mirrors meeting. Imagine what's like two mirrors just come right together and meet. It's just what's there. When infinity meets itself via you, as infinity, two mirrors meeting, everything, nothing, eternity. That's all we are, really, two mirrors meeting. And then, you know, the personality comes back, and here we are in our head, and getting irritated that dinner is late. Isn't it a great world? <laughs> We're constantly going between the 
the divine and the human, which are, of course, all the same. So another question you could reflect on instead of these two mirror meeting is what in you right now is free from birth, life, and death? If you went to your body and you were to feel, what in me right now is free of birth, life, and death? And drop into the gut with that question, is there a tiny space somewhere inside that feels like it could be free of birth, life, and death. And keep orienting to that. If you found something, if you didn't, don't worry. And if you do find something, keep orienting to that. The you that's free, that's off the wheel. And then in her life, we keep doing this being that Buddha showing up. And the Tibetan Wheel of Life is a beautiful painting of all the different things that happen in the life cycle and then all the different realms of existence that one can go to. And I almost brought it in, but it's a little bit horrific looking. I didn't want to scare anyone. But they've got like these hell realms and there's always a little Buddha sitting immobile and calm in every realm. So in the hell realm and fiery things happening, there's a little Buddha just sitting there, immovable, loving presence. And then in the heaven realm, there's one in the human realm. And you see these little Buddhas just sitting there everywhere. And that's, that's, you, that's us. That's you and your emotions. Can you have that little thing sitting here no matter what? in sickness or in health. In sickness or in health, can you have that little Buddha sitting there? In times of trauma and fight, flee, freeze, can you have that little Buddha sitting there? The last few months I've been going through like huge life change and loss and it's just been tearing me up and creating these huge like emotions like raw and it's like these realms of existence just rearing up and the thing that's a saving grace with these huge emotions that I haven't experienced since a kid is just this little Buddha sitting there always whether I'm experiencing complete terror freeze scared there's always a Buddha I can go to and go, oh yeah, <laughs> my, my like point of sanity. <laughs> and as you know, emotions can get really riled up. So the practice has been a real savior in times of big emotional upheaval. And as some of you know who deal with physical <laughs> illness, it's a tremendous gift. One of my friends who died of ALS, he and I had been practicing for about 15 years when he died, and he said, you know, Amita, if I didn't have mindfulness, I'd be lost, completely lost. Right before he died, he said, and I'm so glad I'm not practicing, trying to learn it in the 11th hour, because I wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't be useful. 
So that momentum of those little Buddhas, there he was. He could barely think, barely move, barely talk. Totally humiliated. Everyone had to take care of him. He was a very proud man. And he still had that Buddha he could go to. That's why we practice. Ajashanti says there is a natural instinct to let go that is deeper than the survival instinct. The nature of everything is to fall open. A natural instinct that is deeper than the survival instinct. And when things are openly held inside you, they find their way to harmony and resolution. So when you can keep just dropping down, being that Buddha, taking your one seat, trusting, opening, this natural harmony starts to come, like even with me and my roiling emotions, I could just come back to harmony, just come back to harmony. There's a haiku that says, simply trust, don't the leaves fall down just like that. So it's creating that safe space inside where things can fall open in you. And that's what retreat is. And thank you so much for trusting and being here this time to let yourself start to fall open, even in small ways. Even if you jump back into the story, you learned a little bit about being that mountain base. And the mountain base connects everything. Even towns that are fighting and, you know, the mountain, it just connects all things with its stillness and its broadness, again, wide. So part of being on retreat is seeing where we get stuck. And you've probably noticed a few places your mind gets stuck. And it's not so much that that's a problem, but we just keep emptying out. We let things fall away. We empty out in Hawaiian. They call it huli. Huli, your bowl. Empty out your bowl. So we come here and we're emptying out the bowl of our mind and our heart so we can go down to zero. And the beautiful analogy, you know, when we leave our shoes outside the door, you're leaving like you out there, you're leaving your worries and your personality. You know, think of it when you do that next time. It's you could just leave your ego out there and you come and you take your one seat just as empty, just showing up, being emptied out, being a vessel to receive in your shoes and all your worldly concerns. You can pick them up when you go outside again if you want. <laughs> There's a retreat in L.A. where everybody's shoes got stolen. <laughs> they came out and there were no shoes. Oh. It was interesting to see all the different reactions to that. The monk, a monk who had, it was his only pair of shoes because he was a monk. He just burst out laughing. <laughs> oh. That's a Buddha in every realm response, isn't it? 
So we're emptying out our mind. We're letting our heart relax and be as wide as the world. And the beauty when you widen your heart and empty out your heart and you don't grasp so closely to your heart wounds, and, you know, we all have a lot of heart wounds, a lot of hurt, your whole heart will return to its fluidity when there's no grasping to where the wounds are, it'll, it's almost like a creek. It'll just start to flow more as you. So part of embodying the gut is a commitment, whether you realize you've taken it or not, to be the resolution in the world of opposites. So if you're holding two polar things, say you have two arguing children, and you're the parent, you become that peace and that resolution for those children. You don't force one to be different. You're it. You're the resolution. And this is a deep undertaking to be the vibratory resolution of everything that's at war in yourself and the world. So when you take your seat, it's a big commitment. It'll take you a long ways. I guess you don't have to take that commitment if you don't want, but it will take you a long ways. Unfortunately, I think when you start a meditation practice and come to a retreat, you start a spark of willingness to be this resolution. Trungpa Rinpoche used to say, you know, hey, leave now. <laughs> if you haven't started practice, don't start, because you might not, might not want to take this journey. So the more we can commit to what that's going to mean for each one of us to take our one seat, to be the resolution of everything that's at war, everything that's opposed. And it starts in your heart and mind, you know, where you're at war with yourself. Somebody was saying in group today that they had stopped judging themselves, but then they started doubting that maybe them not judging themselves was, uh, you know, was then they were slacking off. So you went from judgment to doubt. And we just go around and around. We have to stop the war. You know, Hawaii was colonized, and that creates a lot of strife for the indigenous people. And my auntie elder there, she, she wears a T-shirt that says... Um, decolonize your mind. <laughs> That's the place to start. We have to be the resolution we want to see in the world. Anthony DeMello says that enlightenment is a complete cooperation with the inevitable. A complete cooperation with the inevitable. That doesn't sound like a small thing. So all those stuck places in you, all those places that are locked or stuck, it's letting them fall open, 
widening the heart. Our head can be like a giant fist. This teacher I saw this summer, she said to me, she goes, Amita, your head's like a giant fist. <laughs> it's always attacking things. <laughs> it's always trying to figure everything out. It's like knocking on things. And I was like, oh God, she's right. <laughs> and then it's dropping down from this constant figure it out. How can I understand this Buddhist thing and the philosophy and dropping down from that wind energy into maybe the heart, which is more flow and more connection. And then dropping down even further. It's like I said earlier, it's like taking these eight-lane freeways and then you go to a smaller and smaller road until there maybe is no road. And that's you. Even if you go back onto the freeway, keep that empty, quiet space in you. When you're passing these huge trucks, just keep that empty space. Even when you feel raw, and you know, the gut and the heart can be raw, very raw. Before we really get to that zero place, you can start to feel the grief of the whole world. All the joys and sorrows, grief, it just starts to move through in waves. And we have a responsibility to bear witness and let all that be. Rumi has a poem. I am the water. I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There's nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself did I come to this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now in this ocean of purling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. That's our journey. We lose track of which is ours in this purling current ocean. Our practice helps us develop fluidity. And there's a lot of talk these days about emotional agility and the ability to be fluid and agile with your emotions. And I think the gut can be fluid and agile. This broad sense of you can be fluid and agile. Find out more about it. So lastly tonight, Keep going. Always keep going. No matter what. There's no end to this path. There's no end to eternity. So keep going. Early on in practice, there was a saying that I just, you know, do three-month retreats. It feels very long after about six weeks in, and they're actually doing a three-month retreat right now, so God bless them. Mm -hmm. 
and there was this, somebody said something, one lone star to guide you on your long walk home. And I would just say that to myself over and over, and I can, I can just see one lone star of, you know, the next moment of mindfulness or the next Dharma talk or whatever it was. So just see if you could find your one lone star just to be that touch point when it gets really dark. Keep going. Keep going. Don't leave before the miracle happens. Keep honing your orienting principle. There's a beautiful Tibetan saying that you make your mind as wide as the sky and your actions are as refined as a grain of barley flour. So eventually your net of your mind, heart, and gut is cast just completely wide, but you get more and more clear about what's right action and what you can do. And in a way, things get finer and finer, and they get wider and wider. The more conscious we become, the narrower the path gets in some ways around the precepts and what we feel we can get away with. And the view gets wider and wider. So it's just this beautiful combination of things if you let it keep settling for you. So keep going, keep listening, keep widening. Go deeper like a mountain, deeper, breathe, keep going, have fun. So I'd like to close with a poem. Unfortunately, I don't know who wrote this. It's called Let Nothing Be Left Unsung. Thich Nhat Hanh said, if we try to stop the flow of a river, we will meet the resistance of the water. When I was a boy, I collected things. It didn't matter what it was, as long as it was small enough to fit in my pockets, I wanted it. Bottle caps, keys, the toy surprise inside a box of Cracker Jacks. What I loved most was collecting fossils. I would spend all recess on my hands and knees sifting through the gravel on the playground to find dusty crinoids. The best days were when I would lift them to my eye and the hole in their center went all the way through to the sun. When I got older, I collected doorknobs, spoons, broken pieces of porcelain. In the woods, I walked dried riverbeds and deer paths that crisscrossed their way through the hills and bottomlands. Soon I taught my son the same, so that not only were his pockets full of things, but also the language of things. Geode, crystal, feather. He has a corner in his room where he piles up things he has found. Showing them to friends that come over, he asks us to drop them in water to see how they change. Mostly he gives them away, but there are some that he hides in his room so no one can find them. Sometimes cleaning his room, I find them, a tooth hidden on his bookshelf or a rock tucked into a box of crayons, and I know that we hide the things we love, even if it means we risk losing them in the end. 
For months, I have been conducting an orchestra of loss. But haven't we all? And isn't it more like a chorus of loss that we all have been left to sing? I heard the poet Somaj Sharif say, language is the first casualty of war. And I think she is right. The country is full of static. The mouths of the talking heads look like fish gasping for air. But they cannot stop a river for long. Can't you already feel the water as it rushes over us? Can't you already hear the drums? Let us sing the names of all our losses and all those flames we walk with into the light. Let us sing the names of all our losses and all those flames we walk with into the light. Keep going. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.